So our next guest needs no introduction at all. Please, everybody, give a warm welcome to TV's Adam Clark. Oh, hooray. Uh, I just came in from my last podcast, and boy, are my arms tired. Wait for applause. <laughs> Today we are gathered to discuss the fine art of emceeing, of comparing, mm. not comparing things, but being a compare. I don't know if anyone uses that as a verb. <laughs> I I don't uh, I don't think so. <laughs> I always like that word hmm. a lot. It's a shame it never took off here. Well, I th yeah, I guess here it didn't. I I learned it through Monty Python through mm -hmm. through that sketch with Eric Idle as the really greasy compare. Mm -hmm. But um, but yes, we come off having had recently a big megaphonic hoedown party celebrating all sorts of things yes uh in which we had a little bit in the middle of it introducing and talking about all the different great podcasts we have here and you were kind enough to do the mc job on that and i think you did a fantastic job of it well thank you uh I, it was it was less me chomping at the bit and more like we were discussing what roles we would have for the preparation and aftermath of the party and of course what was who was going to MC was a thing that nobody wanted to do. <laughs> well, so it's like, okay, well, I have some experience doing that. I can take that bullet if that's the thing that people most dread. I I would have been happy to do it, but I was, but you were the right choice for it. Oh, okay. So so that was a very you know that was a, that basically that party functioned as a kind of house party. It was at a venue which was some people's house, mm -hmm. and it had that nice intimate feel to it with you know maybe. I don't know, 30 million people in the crowd. I don't remember how many. It was all a blur, but more people watched me than the entirety of the finale of MASH. Yes. And you didn't go on for quite as long. No, nice thankfully. <laughs> I, I, I know that, you you know, you had uh, different questions prepared for each of the different mm -hmm. hosts of the various podcasts, but how much of the sort of bitty bits that went around that did you have prepared before you got there? None. Well, you had at least one because you had a prop. Oh, I had a piece of paper, but I just remembered while I was up there that I had a piece of paper on me. <laughs> so okay. I, I just thought of that and I happened to hand it to someone who was your friend, which made it all the better because I think that was when we started talking about this program. Yeah, somebody who had just just started listening to the show, who, who will probably get around to this episode in about three years. <laughs> But yes, yeah, so um, no, I, I, I guess I have like rules about emceeing um, that are based on context, based on situation. And if you are, if you're like emceeing at like a clearly labeled comedy venue where a comedy show is happening, then yeah, the MC should totally come up, do like 10 minutes of like their best material, then introduce somebody and then kind of faff around between sets as briefly as possible unless one of the acts was totally bad and then they have to really kind of like clean up and save face for the rest of the show and the other comedians um however if it's not a comedy show as i have learned i don't think it's the best and, and this might just be me it's like i don't think it's the best to do like material because 
One, we were at a party and the party had already started. Like everyone was there. And uh, as as is the case with every house party, uh, we were partying because someone's parents were out of the house. <laughs> um, but th- that, that mingling had already happened. And to put an end to people's good times because Uncle Fartbutt wants to tell a few jokes terrible idea like that would that would make me the enemy uh whereas (laughs) if i approach people in a more kind of conversation and off the cuff and off the top of my head uh kind of entertainment if that was what i was providing if i seemed um if i was in in that kind of conversational mode as opposed to a stand-up mode of i have this prepared bit and i'm going to try to trick you into making into a magic trick and try to make sure that you can't get to it before i get to it um that kind of magic trick that stand-up is and like i have to just riff and uh that i think is the best choice for unconventional uh moments where you are like emceeing and supposed to be funny because like um, that's I think something similar they do. Um, there's always a warm up guy for sitcoms that are filmed before a live studio audience, and to me that sounds horrible. Like, isn't that awful? <laughs> that like it's like, hey, this show that you want to watch that you've like waited to get tickets for that's filmed in the lo- lovely Bel Air area. Um, like you have to listen to some guy do his act. Between set changes? That's horrible. <laughs> well, now, wait. Uh, suddenly, I, I just realized something. Have you never seen a TV show filmed? No. Like, have you never been a live part of a live studio? No, you haven't. Oh. No, no, no. Uh, this is a thing I've done a few times. Oh, seriously? So you've seen this in action? <laughs> yeah. yeah I, grew up in, I grew up in New York, so um, they film shows there occasionally. What? <laughs> and, and so I've seen a few shows of – I've never seen a sitcom. Hmm. So I've never seen anything that had different sets in that sense where you had to kill time between them. Things I've seen include, uh, I, I saw, uh, some like, uh, not even, uh, I can't even remember the name of it show that uh, was on comedy central back in the day that starred Mo Gaffney. No, I don't even know who that is. She, she's a stand up. She had a kind of talk show that was mostly reasons, you know, people would come on and do their bits. Hmm. And there was a, and I got to see a taping of, um, what's his toes? Conan O'Brien. Oh, wow. When he had his show. I don't know. Does he, he has a show now still, doesn't he? Uh, yes. Does he? I don't remember. Yeah. yeah it's his, his old show. It's his old show. Right. This was back in the day. This was, um, I, I went and saw it with a bunch of friends who were going to see it because REM were playing on the show that night. Oh. But, uh, also on that show was Alyssa Milano back <laughs> when she was on that show about witches. Um, oh. And, Unable to keep up her end of a five-minute interview. (laughs) (laughs) To the surprise of no one, Alyssa Milano is not one of the great thinkers. Oh, my word. The questions just kept getting more and more softball until basically Conan O'Brien had to answer all the questions for her. I Mm. bet that was very embarrassing for you. (laughs) You must have really... Oh, my God. It was was amazing. (laughs) So both of these had warm-up backs. It helped in... The I forget whether there was a pre warm up warm up act for Conan, hmm. but Conan did the warm up act, and it was the best. Oh yeah, that was the best part of the event uh, because he basically came out 
to the tune of Hunka Hunka Burn and Love, and then picked out a woman in the audience quite near where we were sitting and like performed it at her and did it with such vigor that like his entire body turned beet red <laughs> as he's just like pummeling over and over and bending forward and, and uh, you know, miming, miming the words to this. Uh, it was, it was just great physical comedy, which wow. is not the sort of thing you usually associate with Conan O'Brien, but you know, for an insanely tall, lanky man, you can, as I used to be. Before I put on the weight. <laughs> yes, before the shrinkage. <laughs> exactly. Uh, that is, that is uh, yeah, it can be, you can be very Muppety if you if you go down that road. Yeah. Uh, there was some sort of comedian at the other thing that I saw. And I think I've actually seen more than that, but they're not coming to mind right now. No, mm-hmm. other tapings. But um, they were fine. Sometimes mm. it it felt like they missed a beat. But it did, it did generally, like, I, I, it didn't feel like you were waiting so long. It felt like you were getting a little. You, you felt like you were getting warmed up. I don't know. You, you knew it was going to happen. Like I, I, I knew before I got there that there were going to be warm up acts. That this was part of it. And you've just spent a couple hours in line mm-hmm. <laughs> waiting to get into the thing. That's the part that drives you crazy. So this is actually something happening to entertain you after you finally got in your seat, and when you've been told that you can't get up and go to the bathroom or leave for the next three hours or whatever it is, mm-hmm. like. The this is your first sign of life. This is your first moment of anything, and so having a warm up act is you know pretty nice, even if they aren't that great. Okay, so that sounds good for for those particular contexts. Like I can see that like waiting in line and wanting that to happen. Whereas I think in the context of the megaphonic party, where every like I said, everyone had been, you know, mingling and having a drink and st- oh, who, who do you know here? And and why, what shows do you listen to? And all this chatter. Um, had that all come to a stop because it's like, all right, I have 15 new minutes. <laughs> yes. And this has all been a trap <laughs> so that you must hear them. That would have been awful. That would have been like nightmarish for all concerned. Like that, that, that would have been such an act, I think, of like ego that it would have been like it should have, it would, it would have to be filmed and then like played. Uh, for me every minute of every day for the rest of my life as a crime, as a punishment for my crime, for my war crime (laughs) (laughs) against humanity. I mean, I do think that uh, people were, people want to feel like they came to this party for a reason. Like Mm -hmm. there was, it's almost like there was something virtuous about it. So having a little bit of talking in the middle of it was a good idea. And I think people were very ready to hear what we had to say to them, why we asked them, what, you know, you're probably wondering why we've gathered you all this evening. Yeah. But certainly doing 15 minutes of bit without them realizing that they had come to a 15 minutes of bit kind of thing. Yeah. That would have been, Ooh. that would have been a bit over the line, a 15 minute bit over the line. Yeah. Just nightmarish. And, you know, I mean, sure there was perhaps, perhaps we should have gone with uh, one of our original ideas, which was that the shows would be announced as part of a murder mystery yes. <laughs> in which every guest is a suspect. <laughs> well, next year, next year's party can, can be like that. <laughs> That's when we hold it in a haunted house. <laughs> Here's over. Did I see you MC something before? Yes, because I emceed the, the, the magazine. Yes, I emceed the arrival of Newfoundland Quarterly in Toronto when it first started getting distributed there. Yes, and you did a very good job with that emceeing event as well. That one you were you did do a bit of stand up, which I think was part of your remit there. I think you were specifically asked to do more of that. Yes, I I, I did do stand up as requested, um, as demanded uh, by the public. Um, <laughs> 
but uh, uh and and that was that was good and i mainly focused on like okay like what bits could kind of lead to or create a an overall kind of like high energy thing and i was trying out some new things because when you're when you're an mc you can be like a little bit flaky and find out it's like oh is this working no it's not all right i'll immediately retreat back into safe safe material because (laughs) you know you're only doing 15 or 20 minutes at the top or whatever and since it was frame that way it's like there was going to be different types of entertainment because afterwards there was uh an interview and a presentation of the magazine and 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 then the evening was done and we could all you know drink wine and eat cheese or whatever the hell we did that night (laughs) it's all a blur but because it was like oh this is kind of a variety event held i think quite quite perfectly at a comedy club because i was at the rivoli then it was uh it was totally okay to to do stand up if anything it was it was very appropriate if anything everyone should have done more stand up there <laughs> because it wasn't comedy club after all and you've also emceed for just straight up stand up nights i have emceed stand up nights and i have emceed um kind of comedy adjacent events like um due to the popularity of uh, Newfoundland icon Rick Mercer and his rants, which I guess made him the equivalent, uh, the Newfoundland equivalent of Dennis Miller. <laughs> I'm sure he'd love to hear that. Oh, yes. Yeah. Those two would go together <laughs> like coffee and cream. Um, because of the popularity of Rick Mercer's rants, uh, Mun University, well, Memorial University, I said Mun University, which would, of course, be Memorial University of Newfoundland University, they they have a, uh, um, a contest to win tuition, which is called Rant Like Rick, in which uh, students, they initially record a rant, and so anyone can enter that. And then the best of those rants are called and performed live, and they either perform the same rant or they write a brand new one, and usually comedy people or people in the arts or writers are are brought in to judge and they usually have a comedian or a sketch comedy or improv person mc and i hosted it two years in a row and with that too like they expect me to be funny so i have to open up with some material but i also have to kind of keep it limited at the top because like the students don't like i am not i I was never a big comedy star and so like me coming out and going like hey you want to see all your friends here so you can see if they're gonna win free tuition however i have some things to say about my dating life that i really want you to hear (laughs) (laughs) again terrible idea but if i did like Three minutes at the top, talked about the show, riffed a little bit about that, maybe ended on a joke, and then introduced the first person and kind of do material slash, you know, a little quip here or there as needed. And because everyone was bringing up a topic, this, that, that was what was so, like, juicy and great about that event as an MC. Like, it's one of the few times, like, MCing... I guess I'm okay at it, but it was, I was never something that I like set out to be. I was never like, I want to be the best MC in the world. <laughs> like it, it, it just, it wasn't, uh, uh, it was never on my bucket list. Um, but when you are just riffing and, and that's, that's primarily, uh, what you should do, I think as an MC personally, when you're at an event like that, where people are introducing brand new ideas all the time, like people are ranting about a subject and I, you, you know, there's 18 of them. It's so much to play with. And mm-hmm. because now the students are standups, it's like, Oh, there's so many things that you missed that I can now do. <laughs> I'll show you how it's done. You miserable students. <laughs> um, 
put you in your place. But, but that was, that was extremely fun. So I did that once and then I was invited back and, uh, and then I, I shortly left, I left the province shortly thereafter. So could not, I could never do it again, but yes, it was, uh, that was a real, uh, that was fun. So yeah, I, I have to say, even though it's like, yeah, it's like, I, uh, I, I definitely had like a lot of thoughts about like what works and does not work as an MC, and I, but I never I never sought out to 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 be one. It's never something that uh, I always thought about stand up as like so not pure, but like so focused on like the material. And because I always thought like MC should be very loose with their material, I guess I sort of saw it as like oh, I guess I'll do it. Uh, it was the consolation prize of performing on a night. Were you ever tempted to write up? three to five minutes of like student days material for that particular MC job. Yeah. By that point I had seen so much stand up, even just on television, let alone like performing it and seeing it live that I felt like I had, like I had my own ideas about like what worked as an MC. And like, I, I think any comic would tell you different. <laughs> no one should be taking, I don't think anyone listening to this program is going to be taking my thoughts on comedy as gospel. But uh, yeah, like I think, I think you have to be loose. I think you have to wing it as much as possible. Like there's, there's so much winging it that, that you should do as MC, especially because like setting the tone for the night so much can go wrong, especially at comedy clubs, which I guess is where this instinct comes from, where it's like, you want to get out there and do your material, but you have like a really short time span right at the top because, you know, you want to do seven minutes and then introduce the first person. And then you're going to come back and you're going to do, I don't know, maybe three to five and then do this. But as soon as you get up there, because it is a comedy club slash restaurant in the case of Yuck Yucks, which is usually where you'd be performing in Canada, you're getting getting on stage the moment that people who have been staring at an empty comedy stage since they arrived are now getting huge bowls of melted cheese <laughs> delivered in front of them and you are now competing with cheese and i have to say i i've i i've i've been good but i've never been as good as fresh fromage <laughs> so i've never done comedy show emceeing but like have you have you hosted events like in any yeah, in any sort yeah. of way okay so the thing that i've done the most of by far of that sort uh has been that back when i helped to run a poetry reading series back in portland there were a handful of us doing it and at first we would all take turns but it quickly became apparent that two of us enjoyed this and the rest of us didn't. And so I would do this and my friend David would sometimes do it. And David had this very resonant voice and he has this encyclopedic knowledge of everything poetic. So he could just sort of effortlessly tie things together. I, I didn't. Mm -hmm. I I didn't know most of the people who we were having, all you know, most of the poets who were coming through town who were taking advantage of their itinerary in order to say, hey, read for us while you're in town. I didn't know a lot of them. And also I found the traditional poetry introductions to be mind-numbingly boring. Yes. Because <laughs> they're usually just reading out the the CV right, of the poet. Like, they published in this, and this, and this was put out by Papa Dot Press and whatever. <laughs> I was like, that, that tells me so little. That gives me nothing to do. It just makes me bored before the poet gets to bore me, right? Mm -hmm. So... So I always took it in a very different way, and I and I became sort of notorious for doing radically different styles of of introductions, where basically I would just come up with something that I'd want to say. I'd make up something that would 
tie the different readers together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I would just introduce something. I would talk about how this person's work always made me think of broccoli, and then I'd t- say a few facts about broccoli, and then and then I'd say this other, the second reader, it doesn't remind me of broccoli at all, more of a more of an eggplant, and then to say a few things about eggplant. And the weird thing about doing this, like it, it just was, it just was fairly random, but it, it made people listen because they had no idea what I was going to say next. Mm-hmm. They, they, I was just taking them from the from the free wine. And bringing them, bringing their energies and focusing it onto the stage and getting them to, into a state where anything could be said and it would be potentially interesting. That was the kind of energy that I was trying to give to the poet who is reading for us. Very often, the random stuff that I was saying would be weirdly and unexpectedly reflected in whatever they were planning on reading that night anyway. So I mentioned broccoli, <laughs> oh, really? and then suddenly it turned out they had three poems with broccoli that they'd never thought about the fact that broccoli was in these poems. But suddenly there it was, and they're like, oh my God, broccoli. And so it, it often made a really interesting uh, effect on what the what the people were reading. But, but that is a fairly different kind of uh, energy, because you don't have to... Uh, I don't know. The poetry, the poetry audience is often more forgiving, or at least more willing to be bored than I imagine most comedy audiences are. (laughs) Yes, but I think it's a good idea to charm them. I mean, my God, live readings are such a snore because everyone puts on their, I just put on a bath bomb voice. Like everybody does that. And it's, it's like, no, have some sense of performance. Like I want to, like, I'm reminded of, of good advice for stand-up, but it really applies to anyone who's going to be uh, performing, and that includes like just basic hosting duties. The audience wants to like you. They're like they're not going to like unless you are wearing a heinous shirt or have something horrible <laughs> carved in your skull. Um, like the audience is going to go, "Ooh, that person is coming on stage to say something. I better pay attention." And you can lose them very quickly, but like they do want to like you, so let them. And bringing a little bit of personality to that goes that extra mile. Like I think that revealing yourself uh, and then and revealing your 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 inner weirdness, letting your freak flag fly, <laughs> is is a good way to do that, and perhaps like the only way to do that. Just make it as kind of like you as possible, because it's like, well, you're even if it's not your event, you are hosting the event, so all eyes are on you for right now for setting the tone for this thing. That's a good idea. That was that's. I'm curious, did you ever try to? create uh intros in the form of poetry like you would put out a a haiku because you had a tight five syllables <laughs> that's not usually how we would describe them yeah no definitely some something some of the interactions especially if they were for people i knew like if i had a relationship with them i might go the extra mile <laughs> the guy who reminds you of eggplant <laughs> yeah exactly i might I, you know so i did write some poetry type things or some more extended pieces for friends of mine or people who i had who i had more of a who I knew more about and who I who I had something that meant a bit more to say. Yeah. So yeah. So sometimes I would have decidedly pre-written stuff ahead of time and, and or very, very orchestrated performancey type stuff uh, as well. One of the other things about that is that when these when this reading series started up, I was dating somebody who was an experimental theater director. Oh. And so he would come very often to the readings. And I was coming to his theater stuff and so forth. And it was really, it was really f- fruitful, but it was really interesting how intensely frustrated he was at the poets for 
having no sense of performativity, mm-hmm. who, who just squandered this live moment. He, he just took it as a complete affront that you could you know, he'd gather these people and have them all paying attention to them and then just flitter it away by thoughtlessness and, and, and a sort of uh, a, a seeming incapacity to understand the dynamics of the situation and what was going on. Mm. And it, I argued with him. Like I made up, I made a good defense, or I tried to make a good defense of some of the things that I think at least the poets who we would tend to have on were trying to do by being so kind of performatively flat. Yeah, that they were kind of trying to present a kind of blank page uh, that you could hear the text, and then you you would have as little as little interpretation mediation going on, so that you could try to hear it and do more with it than they might have been able to bring to it if they tried to perform it. You know, performance is kind of a way of shutting down options for a text. You see a performance of a Shakespeare play. Yeah. It is an interpretation of Shakespeare, but if you just read the text, you're making up several potential interpretations. Right. So so that's some of the stuff that's going on, but ultimately, like, I I came to agree with them. Yeah. <laughs> really, really, this should all be more thoughtful. And that changed my poetic performance as well. So, you know, I, as well as, I mean, he was the only one, there were other people in the group who were very open to these ideas, but in general, the people who were organizing that were doing much more interesting, performatively interesting things with poetry than most of the people who came to read for us who were doing, who, who may have been a bit more better known than we were. Mm-hmm. So that was all very exciting. Yeah, and I, I mean, it's funny. As soon as you mentioned that conflict that you have, I was immediately on the side of your uh, theater director. Actually, I was like, no, it should be interesting. <laughs> Speaking of yeah. with an acting background myself, it's like, yes. One of the things that also made this really somewhat imperative was that due to the nature of Portland, due to it being a large but fairly small at the same time kind of city, mm-hmm. there's a lot of cross-pollination. So there were a lot of poets who had ended up being part of experimental theater groups or doing experimental dance or doing music or whatever. All these people were paying attention to each other in a way where in Toronto or New York or other bigger cities, like you can get really into your niche and just live there. Yeah. So I was, I I became involved in his experimental theater troupe. And the only reason I've ever gotten on a stage dancing was because there was somebody who was, you know, doing experimental dance. And that's a story for another time. Yes. But that meant that they would come to our poetry readings as well, because it was part of the community. We'd all go to each other's events. So there were quite a lot of non-poets in the room Hmm. who were sympathetic to poetry, but, or, you know, who thought that this is potentially interesting and legitimate and all that stuff. Like they were willing to give it a try in a way that most people don't. And... You didn't want to bore them. You yeah. didn't want you didn't want to present them with just endless words that that you know are maybe okay for a few minutes, but quickly that quickly stop having any sort of meaning or or aesthetic pleasure or anything. Yeah, I, I think it's it's the time between your first beer and the moment the first audible sigh from the first poetry reader can be heard that my live poetry going attitude goes from hey poetry to oh noetry noetry is correct uh-huh. so i've done that and and some of those events were bigger events sort of all day lots of readers kind of things we had a sound poetry festival and it was you know i was the person who was going to host that because i was the only person who was willing to be a host for a like i was four five hour long <laughs> event that Ooh. had you know 30 or 40 different people performing bits and then like coming up with something that would be different for each one of them was a really interesting challenge and you know I obviously didn't show up with all of them pre-written so several of them I was still scrambling to write 
during the during the event and by the end of it i was completely loopy but it was a really great it was a really great time oh, yeah. as an mc yeah i mean that's that's the crazy thing cuz i i have left stand up for basically everything that isn't being on stage or writing is torturous as i think <laughs> we've kind of gotten at the at the heart of in previous episodes of this podcast uh you know the atmosphere is terrible the open mic process is terrible the social obligations are terrible the time it eats up in your life is terrible but you know actually telling jokes and and just being funny in front of a group of people uh or being entertaining in front of a group of people is energizing and can keep you going so there's a part of you that almost does not want to stop like when you hear about people trying to do like 10 hour shows and things like that like it sounds crazy on paper but you know if you've ever been up there and you've enjoyed it and you're being enjoyed you know what that electricity is like you could you could keep going until your body just stops (laughs) yeah no definitely so i want to come back to something that you said earlier Mm. I want to come back to the idea of somebody who aspires to be the best MC. I think such creatures exist. I think they do as well. Is there a way for them to end up as anything other than just milk toast, as as just Jay Leno? Hmm. Well, I mean, yeah, because it's like you you see MCs who are funny. Like if you uh, if you enjoyed what I did, and 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 then it's like yeah, people would just kind of do that every night where they're just loose. They're loose and kind of connecting with the audience and because no audience is the same i think that's what i think that's the mistake that the jay leno's of the world make which is that it's like everybody like likes cars and jeans i'll talk about that um and you end up with like the worst stand-up in the entire world but you could theoretically just be like an energetic fun comic and like when i say energetic it's like you know for for that to apply to me where the most i will do is stand differently (laughs) That is that is the amount of energy I put in um, physically. Um, you know, it's it's different for for different folks. Like some people are really really manic and active on stage, and they're great, and they're great physical performers. Uh, in addition to being good comics, and and emceeing is the best way to show them off because if you're doing say like you you don't want a really physical act to be the middle in a set. <laughs> <laughs> that would be that, and then have like two low energy comics as your MC and and uh, and uh, headliner. Oh, that's I've seen that happen, and it's always death. It's a terrible sandwich idea. Now, what about what if we just put a bunch of hot peppers between two slices of sourdough bread? Delicious, yes, but you know, not well balanced. Uh, but yeah, I, th- I think you could be good. Like I think you could be good, and just but also like. I think that exists in the sense that like there are people who pride themselves on being really good MCs and I've seen that like happen and and there are people who are good and stay good. They just refine their skills and get better. Um but you almost don't see anyone want to become an MC for life because MC is kind of like the intro position so to speak. Like uh, usually how it goes in comedy in terms of uh ranking is that like your very first thing that you'll get in terms of a paid show is a guest spot so you do five to seven minutes in a show that you were unannounced for but they've but they've made time for you because you know a comedian or a booker has spotted you and gone like you've got something kid you're going on this show and then after that uh sometimes there would be things like if there were multiple middle middle acts, that's a good way to introduce 
like newer comics who are not quite ready to MC. So you'd have, instead of like a middle act doing 20 minutes, you could have like two or three acts taking up those 20 minutes doing shorter sets. And that's a really cool way to, to introduce uh, newer comics instead of just throwing them to the wolves. And it's like, you better have 20 minutes. And, uh, and then usually after doing like some middle spots, it's like, okay. And you're sharp enough to MC. That's usually like, I think the best way to do it. It's like, if you've cut your teeth as a middle or worked your way up to be a middle and then you MC, uh, you're very good. Cause like you're, you, you know, your material, like the back of your hand at that point. And you're probably willing to play because you're probably at the point too, where it's like, Oh, I don't want to do my bit about Clorox bleach. I'm so sick of my bit about bleach. I just want to, I, I don't want to ask the folks how they're doing. I just want to just like, let's, let's see what the first thing comes out of my head. And we'll, we'll talk about that on stage and they might respond to it. And if not, I've got the bit about bleach and that's, then that's what you do. You can aspire to be a great MC, like for artistic reasons, but no one's going to do it just because the money's not there. It's like the money's in being a headliner and touring. Right. Do you know where the term MC originates? Uh, well, I know it means master of ceremonies, which I assume means it comes from the circus. Close. It comes from the Catholic Church. <laughs> that, that makes a lot of sense. It's the person who was, and still is, and still this role still exists, mm-hmm. uh, was the official, I'm reading from the Wikipedia, because that's what you do, uh-huh. the official of the papal court responsible for the proper and smooth conduct of the elegant and elaborate rituals involving the Pope and the sacred liturgy. Hmm. And we got a picture of Monsignor Guido Marini. <laughs> <laughs> who's uh who was the master of ceremonies for Pope Benny XVI. Wow, I wonder if he had a type 5. You're not funny is brought to you by Megaphonic FM. Go to megaphonic.fm and check out all our fancy little podcasts. I, I switched it up there. Did you enjoy that? I did. You know, I can see those years of MCing coming out. Now, now, Chris, did you play the MC in Cabaret? I think you'd be perfect for it. I think you'd actually be a good choice for that. But then again, like the more uh, unconventional you get with that role, the better it is. I don't think I'd fit into the suit. I, I mean, I haven't actually seen it, but I have a mental image of what that looks like. Oh, sure, sure. The <laughs> famous ones are Alan Rickman and Joel Grey from the film version. Yeah, I'm thinking of Joel Grey. Mm. And who is it? If I lost a few pounds, I could do it. <laughs> Gotta make that Joel Grey weight. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, a, a, a well-cut suit can hide a lot. But yeah, that's what I'm, I'm hoping for if I ever get cast as CMC. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So this time around, the topic is MCs. And I guess I'm going first. Yes. Guess it's my turn. Okay. So I want to talk about my favorite MC of all, uh, which is not Miley Cyrus. It's not Macaulay Culkin. It's not Martin Chuzzlewit. It's not even Margaret Cho. No, my favorite MC is the year 1100, (laughs) which is a great year. Uh, In 1100, King William II of England died in a mysterious hunting accident on, and I am not making this up, on my birthday. Was this a great birthday present? I will check Wikipedia to find out. Let's see, in the second, third, son of the first, yada, yada, yada. Uh, he seems like he was an okay, a rumbustuous devil-may-care soldier without natural dignity or social graces, no cultivated taste, and little show of conventional religious piety or morality. That sounds okay. Indeed, according to his critics, addicted to every kind of vice, particularly lust and especially sodomy. Hmm. 
Huh. That's... I mean, it actually sounds like he might be all right. Yeah, sounds like a great year, that year 11. <laughs> well, except, that, yeah, well, he was he was killed then, though. No. Oh. In a hunting accident. <laughs> all right. All right. Uh, still better than Macaulay Culkin. Well, uh, Chris, it's very appropriate that... Uh that uh, you were mentioning the origin uh, of MCs because I, I want to talk about uh, Catholicism. I want to talk about that, uh, but I don't want to talk about MCs. I want to talk about the host. <laughs> you see, as a, as a Roman Catholic, you know, the one way they lure you back, and, and this is how I was raised as a, as a child, is that, you know, church is indefatigably boring. It's, 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 tirelessly tiresome it's 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 a never-ending parade of yawns and the only way that you could keep even the most fidgety kid interested is the promise of that sweet delicious wafer at the end you get a chip if you are a roman catholic you get a chip near the end of the service so not only are you rewarded for sitting through church but there is actually a distinct marker of your progress this is a checkpoint. This is a save point after you have been dozing through so many hymns. You finally get a treat. And I always wondered, I always wondered if they know this, because of course the young kids, they don't let the young kids have a taste of the sweet, sweet chip. So you have to wait to grow up. You you want to grow up more than ever so you can have that delightful Jesus body cracker. And when my time came, and I finally like I remember it clear as day when I finally had a chance to have my first wafer. You know, one of the curious things about Catholic tradition is that when you get the wafer, when you get that Christ chip, the priest always whispers something to you, and I always wondered what it was. And when my time came, I got the secret whispered into my ear for when I was given that delicious cracker. And yes, it tasted way better than I thought it did. Imagine macaroni and cheese times a million. Well, the priest whispered into my ear and said, bet you can't eat just one. <laughs> so I was, I was raised Episcopalian, mm. uh, which, or uh, Anglican, I guess, similar. But anyway, I was raised Episcopalian and we do, we are, you know, Catholic without the Pope. Kind of. Mm-hmm. So we also did very similar stuff with the wafer and 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 the wine, which is always the more exciting part for me as a kid. <laughs> I uh, I don't remember my first wafer tasting all that good. I will admit, and I was always very frustrated because there was one time when I was a kid, mm-hmm. and it was a at, it was at a, a church that was not the one that like we moved after this. Mm-hmm. We didn't move because of this. We moved after this. So I didn't, I didn't grow up in this church. We just, I was just there for a while when I was a kid and we had Sunday school and we were brought into the main part of the church for this day. Cause it was one of those special days where they bring the kids in. And because it was so special, one of the things that they did was instead of offering the, the wafer thin wafers, mm-hmm. they had like proper bread that was cut up into hunks. Oh, so you got a little, like, like a bit of bread that you might dip into olive oil, except it was dipped into wine or eaten on its own. And I always thought that looked way better, but uh, I've never actually, I never got to experience that. Well, you can always just have tapas. I mean, I've got to experience bread. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, finally. <laughs> See what all the fuss is about. Bread. <laughs> <laughs> were you, were you genuinely more interested in the wine? Cause like as a kid, like, you know, you're, you're, you're. Yeah, we were a beer house. So wine was a rare treat. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Mother always serving beer with dinner. <laughs> 
why can't we have wine like the like the Weinstein's next door? <laughs> Don't go over to the Weinstein's. <laughs> you know what? Harvey's no good. Um, so, uh, well, obviously it was it was yeah yeah no my my father drank a lot of beer. Hmm. Still does. <laughs> Not good beer. Oh. Wait, is it like you know? Cool trashy beer like Pibbers or uh, uh, like the strong, like the ultra strong Pibbers, or is he is he just? It's the Bud Light. It's the, oh. I'm pretty sure it's always been the I don't know the Bud or the Bud Light or I don't know. Mm. I was I was not paying attention to such things back then, but yeah. But anyway, no, I was more excited about the wine because once you had the I don't know maybe you had really good wafers, but our wafers were were plaster of Paris. They were they were nothing. Whereas the wine was different. <laughs> Okay. How so? Every once in a while, you you taste a wine and you're like, "That's very communion-y. Oh. Or actually, it's usually usually it's a, a cheap port. Hmm. I guess that's palatable for everybody. Even like, when do they start giving it to kids? Um, I got my well, well. It depends on the church. When did you have your first communion? Uh, well, that's just it. I I rebelled. I uh, I told my family I didn't believe, so I never got communion. <laughs> oh, so this whole act is a blah, lie. Blah, blah, blah. No wonder you thought that wafer tasted good. <laughs> it tastes not like the mac and cheese. It tastes like the foil the powder comes in. Well, that foil tastes pretty good. I've eaten that on on my in my student days. We've all been there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, see, you can build your student MC material from that. <laughs> so uh, we we changed, as I said, we changed churches because I moved a lot as a kid. And one church that I was in gave you first communion when you were about six or seven. Oh. And then you got your confirmation at around 12. Oh, that's what it was. Right. So the church that I ended up with typically did a combo of that. So you d- you got your first communion when you did your confirmation. But I arrived already having had my first. So I was I was the weird kid who got to have the bread and wine mm. when all the other kids didn't. Oh. And they just got the blessing. That's right. I, I I had split off. But I no, I had had I had had my community. I had not had confirmation. Right. Okay. But I'd had wafers, but I'd never had the wine. Uh it was not offered to to youngsters. So I don't know if that was that particular church or if that's a Roman Catholic thing. Because I know that every every variation on Christianity has its own special rules and language. I feel like you were expected to dip the bread into the wine rather than take a gulp as a kid. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. It was a long time ago. I drink harder stuff now. Yes, yes. Harder stuff than communion wine. <laughs> harder stuff than the blood of our Lord. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like if that if that is the body of Christ, then you'd think at the very least that Christ would have enough to him that he could also transubstantiate into, I don't know, some nice little dips. Don't you think a nice little dip would be nice? That's what the wine is. You dip it into the wine. Yeah, but what if I don't want it? Like, what if I want some variety, like a barbecue sauce? <laughs> well, when you die. Yeah. Well, set up your transubstantiation so that it works into the BBQ. Make it bold. Yeah, when, I, when I'm when i crucified, I'm coming back in different flavors. This has been episode 10 of You're Not Holy. <laughs> Chris and Adam. <laughs>